Good morning. This is a priest and a rabbi. Although Father Anderson is on assignment today, it is uh, just a priest. Uh, sorry, not a priest. Uh, well, I guess biblically I could be a priest. Um, uh, a rabbi. So it is I, Rabbi Matt Durbin, here. Uh, and I have a very special guest today, uh, one who uh, constantly gives me the... Um, constantly gives me the fuel and the energy to practice what I believe and to really be able to inspire not only my community, but I like to thank those who come into my midst. So it is with great pleasure that I uh, bring in via uh, uh, Canadian Air Zoom Airlines, um, Zoom Airlines here, my mom, Jerry Durbin, who has been a Jewish educator for the majority of her life. Uh, as well as a museum educator uh, who has inspired so many uh, throughout the course of uh, many decades. So we're just gonna we're gonna use um, um, as our producer will say every week what is the Yiddish word. So we're gonna do a Yiddish word today called kibitz. We're gonna talk. We're gonna talk about uh, the life. How uh, my mom grew up in a very traditional Orthodox household, uh, married a classical reform. Uh, man and uh, you know formed you know four four children in a in a, a very conservative country Canada and what that means and what that looked like for her growing up in a time uh, that um, that Judaism uh, was really and still is uh, the, the definitive and focal point of her life so it is great pleasure this morning that I welcome to our program Jerry Durbin so mom uh, welcome welcome to the program and uh, we look forward to learning from you and certainly hearing about your experiences. So with that, I say uh, good morning and let's get this rolling, a priest and a rabbi. represent WSTU, since they probably regretted over allowing the show on the air in the first place. Nor do they represent Temple Bay Hayam or St. Mary's Episcopal Church, since they also wonder what the heck they did when they called these two men to lead their respective congregations. On that note, sit back, relax, grab your Bible or Torah, and enjoy another episode of A Priest and a Rabbi. Good morning, Stuart, Florida. It is Rabbi Durbin here with a priest and a rabbi. Good morning, Stuart, Florida. I am here, Rabbi Durbin, with a priest and a rabbi. Father Christian Anderson is on assignment this week uh, and is out of town. And um, it's just it's just myself this morning with a very special guest. Uh, and I should say and preface it by saying, um, you know, I spent a lot of time over the last few weeks, certainly the last little while, kind of looking at, you know, those impactful people throughout our lives that give us meaning, that give us purpose, that give us understanding that inspire us to be 
our best selves. Uh, part of at least my personal uh, undergoing, especially with this topic, uh, is because in the next 30 days, we as Jews are going to hit a very special holiday. Um, it's actually a holy day, being Rosh Hashanah, which is going to come in on Monday, September 6th. And as I was thinking about, you know, these moments uh, as, as Jews and certainly as a rabbi of, you know, how did this all come to be? Uh, I started to look back into my past and I started to think about those individuals and certainly those people in my life that have inspired me uh, to uh, undergo the journey that I've undergone. Um, so, you know, it was, it was interesting. So last week, for example, my mom, um, who is a tremendous influencer um, and one who has just great, great value for myself, um, had the opportunity. My mom came to visit for about nine days, uh, eight, nine days last week. Uh, it was the first time in a year and a half, almost two years, that uh, my kids um, have had the opportunity to, to see their grandmother. Uh, unfortunately, my, my, my dad, my their grandfather couldn't make it, uh, couldn't travel. But, you know, my kids uh, have this very strong relationship. So I was thinking to myself for this week that I knew, I knew that Father Anderson would be out of town. And I thought to myself, you know, Father Anderson has brought his dad on the show. So I'm going to bring my mom on the show because uh, I think it's something that's just, you know, my mom has a very fascinating past um, and a very, uh, a very interesting um, uh, journey that has taken her through, you know, a whole multiplicity of different, uh, of different, of different avenues. Um, Father Anderson would laugh at me um, in terms of giving a bio. So I'm not going to give a huge bio to my mom, uh, but I will say that my mom um, is, uh, you know, one of the greatest cheerleaders that I have behind me, uh, has always supported me throughout all of the endeavors that I've decided to undergo and to undertake. Um, it's been a, a just a beautiful relationship that we have shared through almost uh, in 11 days will be 43 years. Um, you know, together and and just and just really solid. Um, so it is with great pleasure that we welcome to our uh, priest and a rabbi to both the radio and to our podcast, uh, my mom, uh, Jerry Durbin. So uh, I think she just flew in via Zoom Airlines. I think she is just at the gate waiting to come in. So uh, mom, Jerry, uh, good morning. Welcome. Good morning, Rabbi. Nice to be here. It is, uh, it is great to see you. I know that, uh, you know, uh, I know that many of our listeners, which uh, encompasses something like 62 countries around the world, uh, were almost as famous as the Olympics. Uh, but, you know, just being able for our listeners to understand a little bit about, you know, you, uh, you know, you obviously grew up in Hamilton, Ontario. For those that are not familiar, geography wise, it's about a 45 minutes uh, west of Toronto. Um, um, you grew up in a very traditional household uh, with Eastern European parents. So, you know, just to start it off in terms of, you know, what was that like for you growing up um, in, a, in a household uh, that was very traditional, um, uh, you know, Orthodox? Um, and, and what values and how, what was that like for you growing up? Uh, well, it was very different from what it is today. Hamilton is a smaller city than Toronto, about 500,000 people in Hamilton. Um, and I had grandparents in Hamilton 
And my mother was originally from Toronto. So I also had grandparents in Toronto. My father was born in Hamilton. And I often would tell people it was like growing up in the shtetl. Now, the shtetls in Eastern Europe were, of course, small, well, some of them were fairly large, uh, communities that were, um, that were designated um, in Jewish communities. And although I was growing up in a modern world, my parents still had very traditional values. Uh, my grandparents in Hamilton came from Poland. They both came from the shtetl called uh, Yeshruth, which was uh, a very large shtetl actually. And they came in, um, I guess around the late um, or early 1900s. Um, the shtetl still existed until 1914, but then the Russians came in and burned it down. Um, there was a large community uh, from the shtetl in Hamilton, where my father was born. And my grandparents, although they came both from the same shtetl, did not know one another and met in Hamilton. When I was very young and we were at the Orthodox synagogue, because my grandparents in Hamilton were the found, were part of founding members, there was this little old lady who um, walked around with a cane and she was somewhat of a scary kind of figure. And I came to learn before she died that she was the matchmaker and actually made the match between my parents. Mm. So I did have grandparents in Toronto and we spent a lot of time giving me my sophistication of growing up in Toronto as well. Now, my grandparents in Hamilton could not speak any English. They only spoke Yiddish. Now, it's a very interesting story because my grandfather in Hamilton, and it is a true story, although he could not read and he only spoke Yiddish, they used to go to the racetrack. And my grandfather could bet on horses. God only knows how he was able to understand who was running and who wasn't. But that was part of the culture at that mm. time. My parents spoke Yiddish. I was a middle child. I had an older sister, a younger brother. And my parents spoke Yiddish when they didn't want my brother or my sister or myself to know what they were saying. And sadly, I have limited ability in Yiddish. It was something that they felt it was a language from the old world and they wanted to be part of the new world. So it was kind of bridging both generations. So it was hard to have the kind of relationship with grandparents that I hope I can have with my grandchildren and I think what most people have today. My grandparents in Toronto were very interesting. For the majority of my life, I did not know 
that my mother was not born in Canada. On every document, everything that she signed, she always put down that she was a Canadian citizen. My father was born in Canada. But if truth be known, my mother was born on the ship when her parents left Russia, or actually they were probably the Ukraine at that time, and was um, in a deportation camp and then finally arrived in Canada. Now, my grandparents, my mother's parents, the ones from Toronto, they arrived in Halifax. And my grandmother had a sister in New York. And at that time, they could not get immigration to New York. And there was uh, an association that both family and friends put money into so that my grandparents and mother could come to Canada. So when they landed in Halifax, they asked what was the closest to New York and they said Toronto and that's how my grandparents ended up in Toronto. Now, while my grandfather was alive, uh, he told us that he was a pharmacist. My mother was the oldest of five daughters. My youngest aunt, um, who was only 10 years older than I am, my aunt Esther, has documentation that she has from, from Pier 21 in Halifax to, for their immigration records. And I think my mother was like two at the time. And on her form, it says, why did you come to Canada? And they put for a two-year-old so she could get a job and work. But thankfully, they put it through. And my grandfather actually was a pharmacist in Russia. It was mm -hmm. a very, very hard life. Um, he was a peddler, and, um, but he made a living for his wife, for his daughters. And I shared every school holiday in Toronto with them. And although they still spoke Yiddish, my grandparents in Toronto were able to converse more in English. So I really did have a much better relationship with them because of the language. You know, as you as you mentioned before, you know, that that understanding that certainly those from Eastern Europe, obviously the lingua franca of the time was obviously Yiddish, which is an amalgamation of German and Hebrew, you know, uh, but when we use the Yiddish itself is is symbolic and is certainly um, uh, emblematic uh, and, and, and has great meaning behind it in terms of being the old world now entering into this new promised land this new land of uh, equality and opportunity. Um, you know, did, did, did your grandparents ever have this understanding that, you know, as you mentioned before, we speak Yiddish in the home, not outside for, of course, for some, uh, Yiddish was the language of the poor, of the downtrodden. English was the language of the sophisticated, of a new land that uh, gave all this promise. Uh, I mean, you know, growing up, you know, were, were, were you influenced at all by the Yiddish, by the culture? Uh, did you maintain it at all? Uh, how, what was that like? Well, you can't separate the culture that you're grown up in. And it was like two worlds. 
One was the household culture. And of course, being old school, um, my parents, of course, kept a strictly, strictly kosher home. Uh, but that was more because their parents wouldn't eat in their home unless it was strictly kosher. So they kept a lot of traditions from the old world when they came here. Also growing up in Hamilton, there was the Orthodox community, which my grandparents, of course, were part of the founding members. So we naturally moved into that community. But because my parents were progressive, we belonged to two synagogues growing up. One was the conservative and one was the orthodox. It was unusual for a woman to have a bat mitzvah at that time. And so we belonged to the conservative so that my sister and myself could have a bat mitzvah. And there was USY, which was a social activity youth group that we were very involved with and spent a lot of time on weekends. Um, so that was the culture that was all around us at that time. My father's greatest moments on Sunday morning when I was growing up would be he would run out, buy bagels, buy cream cheese, bring it home. And at 10 o'clock every Sunday morning from some radio network, he was able to get, it was called the Jewish Hour. And all of the music and all, um, there was a, a mixture of klezmer, there was a mixture of all the traditional sounds and he was in his glory and he would dance around and those were our happiest moments growing up. Mm. It was really, it, it gets embedded into your culture did you did you find that that given that given that experience of growing up in a very traditional household right splitting your time between two different um two different communities both conservative and certainly orthodox uh in terms of shaping you know your understanding uh of what judaism is what it should do uh what you what your hopes and dreams were as you you know, grew up in terms of what you wanted uh, for yourself? I, I think you just take it for granted um, that this is the way it is. Um, certainly growing up, doing candles Friday night, having uh, a traditional dinner Friday night, those were the things that I think give comfort. And so, of course, once I started having my own family, my own children, Friday night became important in our household. And that was because I grew up with it. Now, my husband, your dad, he grew up in a very different household. He grew up in a reform household and his father was always, um, he was a merchant. And so Friday night dinner was never part of the way he grew up. They would uh, go out Sunday night for dinner as that close, cohesive family. And I brought Friday night to the table 
when um, you guys were quite young. And it was interesting that your father got so into it that as you got older and you guys wanted to go out on Friday nights after dinner, I was the one that was cool with it. And he was the one who wasn't because he... It, it, it's such a wonderful, strong tradition and so comforting for any family that it was um, more our dinner party. And it was always a pleasure to invite people over, have conversation, introduce a weekend. And those were the things that became very important. Holiday times were very important. And who has a Seder and where we go. But those were very, very special times and we all looked forward to them. You know, I, 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 should, I should also preface uh, just for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with some of the rites, customs, traditions that we as Jews practice. You know, uh, my mom is referencing obviously the, the, the importance and the need for Shabbat, right? Shabbat, a day, a full day of cessation of work um, to really recharge, right? But there's a difference between recharging and uh, appreciating a day, making it special, and to do what God had said um, of Shabbat, which is to make it holy. Um, and, and you know, as my mom just said, you know, it, it, it's amazing because in some way we would talk about a mixed family. Uh, clearly, you grew up Orthodox. My father grew up what we would call at the time classical reform. Uh, for, of course, my father is uh, still a member. I think we're uh, four or five generations at Holy Blossom Temple, uh, which is actually quite an interesting terminology in and of itself. Uh, as, as, as I'm sure many are aware, there are many Temple Bethels. There are many Temple Sinai's. There are many, uh, 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 you know, uh, and many, many, many different names for synagogues around the world. But there is only one Holy Blossom Temple, uh, Pirkei Kodesh. Uh, in Hebrew, uh, in Toronto. Um, and, you know, it's interesting given, given that, that understanding because, you know, my father's fourth generation of, of one synagogue, of one community. Um, and being in that, in that environment where suddenly you, you fall in love, you start a family, you know, the, the spouse that you've chosen has, more traditional, has a more traditional upbringing. Well, how do we merge the two together? And it's interesting what you said because all my life, I had always assumed that Shabbat, was super important to my father. You know, there are times throughout, you know, the course of a year where maybe, you know, for those for those brief moments where things were planned well in advance on a Friday to be able to go out Friday night, right? Uh, I think that the classic example is 1992, 1993, when the Toronto Blue Jays won the World Series back-to-back. -back. You know, those times that those games happened in Toronto and maybe we got, we got tickets, you know, those were times, or senior prom, those type of things on a Friday night that, you know, my father would say, you've planned in advance. This is, I don't want this to be a habit, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll allow you to go. And, you know, I, as, as, as a kid growing up, that was really difficult, right? All my friends would go out Friday nights. Saturday night was the only night I was allowed to go out, you know, and, and it never really hit me until I was in college when I remember calling my dad on the phone and I said, I think I got it. I think I understand what it's about because it's not about going out or spending time with friends outside of the house. It's about spending time with family inside the house. It's about welcoming Shabbat and enjoying each other's company. 
Now, as a child, I resisted and I found that really challenging because I thought to myself, well, you know, we do the Shabbat dinner stuff, we light our candles, we bless our wine, we bless our challah, right? We, we enjoy, I have three brothers, right? We all enjoy sitting around, uh, you know, a big dining room table. We have the traditional iconic Jewish foods, right? We have matzo ball soup, we have, you know, uh, you know uh, baked chicken. You know, we had all the, all, the all, the, all the trimmings and all the fixings. But then I struggled with what does it matter after? Because after my father would retreat to the, you know, to the living room and sit and watch some TV or, you know, my brothers, we'd rent movies. And I thought to myself, what's the difference? What's the difference between me doing this in my home and me going to a friend's house down the street or around the corner or going to, you know, the cinema to go see a movie on that night? And then I, 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 I got it. It's not about the activity. It's about the moment. It, it, it's about time and space which is what we as Jews have really tried to claim as our own and really try to harness, that we are time down. And there's something there that even now with my kids, which is a little bit different because my kids have to join me for services. Not they don't have to, uh, they want to, because it is something that brings in this, this, this joy. So I guess, I guess, you know, my question to you too is, you know, when, 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 when you were growing up and through the influences that your parents had on you and certainly their parents on them, you know, obviously Judaism was very important. Um, uh, to, to, to what extent? I mean, why, why the continuation? Why the need? Well, I, I think it is a continuation of our Jewish identity and, um, to make sure that we don't lose these traditions and these rituals that continue on from generation to generation. And I think that that is really significant. And everybody gets hungry. Everybody likes good food. Everybody likes family. And when you combine all of those elements together, the continuity in a very um, quiet, subliminal way creates an identity for people. Um, I mean, definitely, it has always, always been important to me. And um, when I married your father, um, I was happy with becoming, with accepting classical reform. I never felt that it impacted on my um, conservatox upbringing. It just more or less, um, it helped it along and it amplified it. I think as long as you, you are happy in um, the things that you do, and the rituals and traditions in the family spiritual life, and you find that spirituality, I don't think it matters whether you're orthodox, conservative, reform, or whatever. And when I became a member of Holy Blossom, I said for the longest time, I no longer do, but I was a Holy Blossom member through marriage. And um, my background, was education. I loved teaching. I was an elementary school teacher. And then when I had all of you guys, um, I had to take a break from it. And uh, when 
you were in religious school at Holy Blossom and it was a struggle to get you out the door and the director or the rabbi at the time knew me and he said to me Jerry why don't you come and help us out and teach and so I think I started oh my gosh I can't remember how many years ago but I progressed as you guys progressed and I ended up finally in the senior school which is a high school where I don't know, probably 15, 20 years where I've been. And um, it's been a wonderful, wonderful journey and experience. I love working with the kids. I so with, think that, with that, with that you just I, I know we, we, we just have to take a quick little break. Um, and certainly when we come back from break, we'll go back to the continuity, uh, the continuation, you know, what that what, what that's like. Uh, certainly also look a little bit as to, you know, traditions and customs that were, were, were done perhaps in your household. Um, so join us as we come back, as we listen and uh, learn from Jerry Durbin, a Jewish educator, one who has dedicated all of her life to the pursuit of menschlichkeit, uh, of being a good and deserving person and raising you know, solid uh, foundation for Jewish children and just good model citizens. Uh, so please join us as we return from break. Hey everyone, it's Evan Nine, producer of A Priest and a Rabbi. Thank you for tuning in and being part of this community. We love developing new partnerships with this podcast to help further the interfaith movement. To join us, please email Father Christian at yourfavoritechristian at gmail.com. You can have an advertisement right here on this podcast, which is currently heard across the USA and in 34 other countries. Thanks for being here, and do not forget to subscribe on whichever podcast platform you're listening from. Now back to A Priest and a Rabbi. Good morning, Stuart, Florida, and welcome back to a priest, I should say, a rabbi and his mom, as we kind of look at some of the meaningful ways that one who grew up traditional and was embraced through the reform movement in terms of what that was like. Right. My mom has been a Jewish educator for probably four decades, uh, has invested her life and her work towards the pursuit of knowledge of inspiring multiple, multiple generations of Jews uh, in our home synagogue in my in my in my in my former host country of Canada, uh, of growing up in Toronto. And, you know, mom, I guess I guess some of the questions I would have was, you know, 
for for you growing up in a very traditional household, as we as we just learned of of growing up conservative and growing up orthodox, and you know those influences, um, you know, and then obviously marrying, you know, your husband being a classical reform uh, Jew, and then merging into this household that you brought uh, and created. Have you seen, especially in synagogue life? Um, I mean, clearly you must have seen huge changes uh, in your own synagogue um, uh, when you were married in terms of major changes that happened rather rather quickly. Um, you know, what I am referencing, if you were to join, uh, say, my home synagogue 30 years ago, 30, 40 years ago, uh, the kippah, uh, the skull cap, the head covering, I mean, you would never see anyone wear that. Um, the prayer book, for example, um, you know, growing up, I mean, there's something like 90% of it was all in English. Very little, if any, was done in Hebrew. I mean, the rabbi never read from the Torah, uh, you know, publicly. That was for bar mitzvah students, or I should say for bar mitzvah students, certainly bar mitzvah students as well. Uh, but, you know, in a large extent, it was it was never really used, whereas also the prayer shawl, to be able to wear the talit on Shabbat morning, you know, that was very far and few between, whereas... 30, 40 years later, we've seen huge stride where uh, people are wearing it. So, I mean, have you seen great, great differences and, and, and changes over the last 30 some odd years regarding synagogues and access to it and, you know, what you remember growing up? No, for sure. I think that the accessibility today is far more um, available, accessible. And I know, especially from my home synagogue, Holy Blossom, how outreach is so important. But remember, Judaism is not stagnant. Judaism is fluid. And synagogues today need to meet the needs of their community. And when Holy Blossom, was established in the early 1930s, there was once again rampant anti-Semitism um, all around us, especially in Toronto. And so the reform movement was very cautious at that time uh, um, in terms of developing its own identity. I think what really drew me to the reform movement was um, Rabbi Gunther Plout was the rabbi when I was married at Holy Blossom, who is a very, very large uh, figure. And he, he fought hard for human rights. Uh, Holy Blossom in the early 1960s was the only spot where Martin Luther King Jr. spoke from the pulpit. He, um, he came to Toronto, Rabbi Plout snuck him in through the back door. It was to an overwhelming audience, but it was a synagogue going back to that time that was always concerned about social justice. And the social justice is what really, really interested me and has motivated me. Um, remember, Jewish history is world history, and I think we have to stop isolating and understand the larger picture of this. 
Also, when I was growing up, my grandparents would never talk about living in Eastern Europe. Obviously, they went through pogroms. Otherwise, they wouldn't have immigrated into uh, Canada. But they would never talk about it. Why? Also, Why? Because too, too painful, too difficult, too painful, too difficult. Let's move on. We're in the new country and we want to be part of the new country. And I think that there was this loss of identity coming from the old country. And so I could never understand how the Holocaust could have happened. And when I was growing up, remember all of my family was here. We really didn't lose anyone through the Holocaust, neither did daddy. Our families were here. And so I could never understand it. And I guess that is also something that um, was a need that I had to understand this and seek out how these things could happen, which is how I ended up as a museum educator at the ROM and mm. also in my temple work as an educator. And, so, um, and also, you know, uh, just to give a little bit of background, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna shame my mom's age here, but clearly, <laughs> um, you know, you were born a month before uh, the creation of the state of Israel, right? Yeah. Israel yes. was created May 14th, 1948. You were born in 1948 in April. You know, uh, did when Israel was founded, and clearly, obviously, you were too young to remember what that must have been like, but growing up in terms of, you know, this connection to a land that you've never seen, to a connection to uh, a land that um, is, is biblically driven, a land that obviously has great importance to Western religious ideology and Western faith. Um, you know, uh, did it have an impact to your parents? Was it important to your parents, uh, the, the creation of a state of Israel and the need to support it? Um, you know, we've seen with other countries, for example, you know, most notably the British, you know, the British had huge resistance to it. Um, we don't want to support a state of Israel because we've got enough within our own country. We got to worry about ourselves first before we can start working on something else. I mean, was that, was that, was that something that your family or your parents or the culture at the time um, had in the forefront of their minds? What was, what was that like? It, it was back, my earliest recollection is um, usually on a Friday, there would be someone who would come to our door and we all had the little J and F, that's a Jewish national fund, those little boxes where we would collect money. And that money was always going back to Israel to help with the trees and to help Israel. Um, helping Israel was something that was um, not as much mentioned the way it is today, it was something that was taken for granted that you were just going to do. Um, I, I could not imagine when Israel bonds were being sold in the synagogue on Yom Kippur, my parents not buying them. It was a way of supporting and it was a way of that connection back to Israel. So, so, and, 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 you know, just to, 
uh, inform our listeners, I mean, uh, you know, when was the first time that you remember, um, you know, landing or descending or encountering the state of Israel? What was that like for you, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually? Well, as as a historian, for me, I guess the first time I was in Israel was when I went with you when you were in rabbinical school um, and we had to move you in. And it was a very, very emotionally packed week because we only had so many days in which to find you residents. And it was very disorganized and very chaotic. And if you recall, I said to you, the icing on the cake was we had to do Masada and we had to do the old city in the King David Hotel on a Friday night, having Friday night dinner. And those two events were really so impactful for, I think you as well, being able to experience that. And just walking in the old city where all the history, where we see where the Maccabees were hiding out, where we see the tunnels, you know, and you see you're reliving history. It is concrete evidence of these events having happened, I think was just a, a really stellar turning point in both of our lives, both for you and for me, because I'm and, sure. And, you sorry. And you, I mean, there's just something obviously remarkable, obviously, about Israel and, and the region um, and many other places. I mean, not just Israel itself. I mean, we know Israel is flanked by by many other mighty uh, Arab nations. Um, you know, you have the very famous Petra, the caves of Petra in Jordan. Uh, you obviously have a very touristy industry in Egypt and the Sinai, right? And these are two nations that that share peace treaties with Israel, right? And there's something about the region itself, right? You know, we talk about Israel being you know, the country that is the size in an American context of the size of New Jersey, in a European context, the size of the country of Wales, right? It's very small. But yet, if you look at America, which is, you know, 4,000 miles coast to coast, Israel has the same thing, right? We have grottos, we have lakes, we have rivers, we have, you know, oceans and seas and mountains and desert. I mean, all of it wrapped in such a tiny, tiny, tiny country. Um, so, I, you know, I guess, I guess, you know, when because you have dedicated so much of your resources, of your passion, of your uh, uh, being of who you are to inform and educate not only, uh, you know, a, a single generation. I mean, you have taught multiple generations. Um, and I will say, uh, just in case any of our listeners are interested, there was a time where my mom was actually my religious school teacher uh, and I abused the right uh, to call her mom. Uh, and if you remember correctly, you made me call you Mrs. Durbin um, during that, and which was quite uh, mortifying and quite uh, embarrassing. But you know what? I, I I guess I may have learned the lesson um, some thirty some odd years later, forty years later, as uh, uh, I uh, became a rabbi. But you know, I guess I guess my question is, you know, what for you teaching religious school? And informing our younger generation about the, you know, rituals, customs, policies, practices, the literature, the culture, the language, all of that. What is that like for you now 
where it hasn't just been one single generation, that it has been, you know, those kids who you taught, who then grew up, had kids, you teach their kids, and now being almost third generation of being able to teach those kids in some way. I mean, what, I mean, that just must be all inspiring in some way. What, what, what is that like for you? Well, it's quite magical because very often, and you're correct, their parents come on and their parents tell their kids that they still remember their experiences with me and how I touched them in many ways. And it seems as if if it's applied in the right way, people don't understand dates. People hate history because they think it's all about memory and about dates, but it's a soap opera. People don't change. And if you can see those relationships, the biblical relationships, what they're trying to imply, how we can use it in today's society, how we can move it forward, how we can be better people, then they become interested. And that is something that will stick with you. Mm. And I think that's the magic, the connections that it really takes place. Mm -hmm. And now because of different Israel trips and different um, organizations where kids today can become leaders um, when they're in high school, when they're in university, and they become emissaries, you know, I think that they are empowered with this, and that it gives us stronger leadership. You know, I will say, I will say, I think, I think, and I'll speak personally for myself, I think one of the greatest gifts that my parents gave me um, um, and, and, and those in the Jewish world will know what I'm referencing, which is an organization called NIFTI, uh, the North American Federation of Temple Youth, which is what uh, uh, the reform movement is very proud of. We do very well with Jewish camping and with Israel trips. And when I was, when I was 15, turning 16, um, you know, I had the option, the option to go back to summer camp. Uh, I went to camp that was not traditionally a Jewish camp. It was a camp owned by Jews. Uh, you know, we did the Shabbat dinner stuff. It wasn't it wasn't like the Jewish summer camps that we have today. Uh, our claim to fame was, uh, for those that know the movie Meatballs uh, with uh, with Bill Murray, uh, that was my camp growing up, Camp White Pine. Um, you know, and, and I was given the option. Uh, my parents gave me the option and said, you can go on your, when you're 16, on your counselor and training program, the CIT year, or you can have the option of going to Israel um, on whatever it was, like a seven, eight, nine week uh, uh, excursion with half of my tour was Torontonians, the other half were from uh, Western and Central New York, Syracuse, Rochester, Buffalo, those areas. Um, and it was, it was, it was, it was, it was amazing because my parents never impressed it um, strictly. But there was that underlying tone that said, you can always do your CIT year, or you can go to Israel. And, you know, when I went to Israel when I was 16, uh, I'm sure many, uh, and I'm, I'm sure the youth director in my home synagogue probably said to my parents, uh, you know, Israel to your son might as well be in Northern California or California. Didn't matter, right? And I think, I think to me, it was something of it's different. It's, it's, it. You know, I didn't understand the impact that the land of Israel would have on me. And I remember when we went there with our tour group, uh, with our tour operator, he had said we were a group of something like thirty some odd kids. 
35 kids. How many of you would fight for the state of Israel uh, or fight for your country? And none of us raised our hands. And after this nine-week tour, we got back uh, in Tel Aviv, and we were boarding the plane to go back to JFK or Toronto. And I remember he said, how many of you would fight for this land? And everyone, everyone's hand went up. And I remember I, I, you know, can't coming home of almost like, you know, I'm 16 and I'm indestructible and invincible. And, you know, thinking in my head, you know what, in two years, I'm going to go join the Israeli army. And of course, obviously that never happened, but there's that strong connections that we make with a, with a land uh, like Israel, uh, which is so important. It is so important for all of Western faiths, right? For Muslims, for Jews, for Christians, right? It is, it is the land of land because it is so embedded in our culture, in our language, in our prayers. Um, and, you know, that in and of itself, I think, forms the basis for how we educate our children, right? And I think that as we educate, and I think, you know, I know we are running a little bit out of time, and I think as we, as Father Anderson and I have always done for the last few years, is let's try and find the, the, the where's the hope, where's the future, right? And when we look towards the future, and I'm not trying to go political, and I'm not talking about some of the challenges that Israel faces, because you know what, some of the challenges that Israel faces, America faces, Canada faces, uh, Britain faces, uh, you know, Thailand faces. I mean, countries, nations around the world face the same challenges and the same problems. Uh, it's how we it's how we go about it and try and make it more palatable for all in our world. So, you know, mom, looking towards the future, you know, where does the where, where do you see the future within within education and the ability to inspire our youth and for them to make their own informed, say, in our context informed Jewish choices. Where do you see well, the future? Well, I think when you were growing up, Nifty and the youth groups, um, there weren't a lot of avenues out there available for these leadership programs. I'm starting to see, especially in high school, the youth that stay um, engaged in post bar and bat mitzvah education are becoming really in tune with um, becoming strong leaders and advocates. I think we're definitely in challenging times, but not just our culture. Cultures in general are all in uh, challenging states right now. But I think our youth are resilient and I really have very strong hopes for the future and for the continuation of all culture. So, so you know, obviously, I mean, look, it's a, it's a beautiful message. Uh, you know, I, I, I think, that I, I'm, you know, there are many people who uh, obviously would agree with you. Obviously, that is the concern, right? The concern is how do we continue in a world that is all too fast and rapidly unwinding and finding scapegoats? And obviously, we know that there's a huge rise and a huge uptick in anti-Semitic violence or comments, right? And I think education is the only way to solve this, 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 this pandemic is the only word to describe it uh, uh, amongst many other things, but more information leads to a, a, a seeing of one another as individuals and as people. You know, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only rabbi in this country or throughout the world that ends my services by saying these words, Adonai Ozlai Moiten, Adonai Varechat Shalom, which says, may God grant strength to our people. 
and may God bless our people with peace. And I end it with, and all people with peace, because I think that that is the message, at least for me, and I know I can speak, I can speak for my mom, is that, look, we as human beings, we don't, we don't want strife. We don't want challenge. We don't want division. However, as Jews, we also want to be understood. We don't want to be judged. We don't want to be looked at less than. And I think that we want to be able to walk alongside our brothers and sisters on this planet, although we may have some differences. And I think this is the beauty of this program that we've done for 140 some odd episodes, being two years, sorry, three years in October, right? The aim is that we can look at our similarities. We all come from biblically the same father, right? We all come from Abraham. And from Abraham ensues our lineage and our bloodline and everything else that goes around, right? We can live alongside our brothers and sisters. We can live alongside uh, our Arabs and our Muslims, as we've done successfully since 711 when the Muslims conquered Spain, right? We lived in harmony because we understood and do understand the value of humanity. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't glaring challenges, but those challenges need to be able to be discussed in a way and a manner that others are able to see what it's about. You know, it, it, it's interesting, um, as you mentioned, and I know we are running out of time, but as you mentioned that the first time that you landed in Israel, right, you grew up with it, you learned it, you studied it, you read it, you saw it in picture books, but being able to step foot on Israeli soil, Tel Aviv could be Miami Beach, fine. 45 minutes later, you encounter the city of Jerusalem, which is a city like none other. And it's, it's something really amazing that your opportunity brought you to Israel because your son happened to be doing his third year in rabbinical school and being able to see the land itself. And I think that the impactful stuff is to be able to bring that back to inform your students, even with more depth and greater meaning as to why, as Jews, we find these certain values or these certain traits or characteristics uh, important and valuable. So, Mom, I, I, I know we are running out of time. Um, I do thank you. This, this, I, I think that there's much more that we could delve into. But, um, you know, I just wanted to say on behalf of Christian and myself, thank you for joining us. Um, I think for me, the takeaway message is uh, we always have stuff to learn. There are always abilities for us as human beings to inspire and to light that spark under a new generation. And I think if we juxtapose the end of our program with the beginning, as you talked about your parents, about leaving the old world, right? to enter and encounter this new world of possibility and opportunity, to be able to do the same for our kids. Whatever we baggage or whatever challenges that we may have had in our past, we still own it, we still respect it, but being able to try and forge ahead so that our kids learn the value that all life is important, all life is sacred, all relationships should be honored and respected. And at the same time that we take great stride and great opportunity to be able to help those in our midst of people.